Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. As you really uh, well know, in our family, coffee is a big deal. Uh, And it's probably uh, similar to you as well. We have Cuban coffee every morning. And that's not just something you can set the timer to. You got to get up. You got to make it. We got to craft our coffee every morning. Some of you are coffee snobs, and so you appreciate that. Some of you think that that is ridiculous, and I appreciate that. One morning as I was sitting there having my uh, morning cup of coffee, one of my sons was in my lap. I'm pretty sure it was Leland at the time, and he was much younger. I was reading my Bible, had my coffee there, and uh, he's sitting there on my lap, you know, just in the way or whatever he was doing. And And he asked me, he said, Dad, can I have some coffee? And I said, sure, but you're not going to like it. And no sooner did I get those words out of my mouth. as It wasn't even fully finished the sentence. He grabs my cup of coffee and takes a big old drink of it before I could stop him. And uh, it had been there for a little while, so it wasn't as hot as they, uh, you know, as I make it. And I looked at his little face, and thankfully he didn't spit it out, and his eyes started to water as he swallowed that cup of coffee. And I looked at his face, and I said, did you like that? And he goes, yes, just like that, you know. (laughs) And so I was like, do you want more? No. Uh, and so, uh, but he is our strongest coffee drinker even today. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that we allow him to drink coffee. It's rare, just on occasion, um, that he drinks coffee. But he learned that coffee is hotter than you expect and that it's bitter at first. He learned that lesson the hard way, right? And there's a lot of lessons in our lives that we learn the hard way. I learned that a clutch does not slow your truck down like I thought it did the hard way. I also learned that chamoy looks better than it tastes. I learned that. I learned that the hard way. And maybe you've learned lessons the hard way. You've learned probably that putting your contact lenses in backwards does not work. You've learned that cell phone glass is not nearly as strong as they advertise that it is. You've learned that the hard way. You've probably learned that cars do not open themselves if you lock the keys inside of the vehicle. You learned that the hard way, I am sure. There are all sorts of lessons that we learn and find out the hard way. Job is a book in the Bible, and it is there to teach us lessons about God. It communicates something about who God is. The main character of the story learns his lessons the hard way, right? As we observed him, as we read this, he learned his lessons the hard way. But it would be really cool if we learned those same lessons the not hard way, right? He learned them, we watched him learn them the hard way, but we are going to learn ours the not hard day. And today I want to share with you, in this final sermon from our Job series, the lessons Job learned the hard way. But before I do, let's, let's all pray together. God, thank you for... This morning, thank you for your words, your wisdom. God, we do thank you for the rain. It is a blessing. Uh, The rain is a blessing, so we always want to thank you for that. And God, today, as we look at your word, I pray that we would walk away understanding more about who you are and who we are and the relationship between the two. God, I pray that these hard-earned lessons would be ones that we learn the easy way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. Job chapter 42. Job 42 
If you have a Bible or you want to open that up or turn that on, go ahead and do that. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you're testing it out, there's a table of contents there in the front. Go ahead and use that. There's no shame in that at all. If I was using the table of contents to find Job today, I would look it for Psalms, and then I'd go there and turn one page to the left, all right? That's going to be the quickest way to find Job chapter 42. Some of you have, uh, not, not on purpose, but you accidentally skipped a couple of these sermons in this series. That happens. You went on a trip or vacation or slept in or something along those lines. And so before we get into the final summary of the Job sermon series, I want to summarize for you the, the narrative, the, the story arch. What's going on in the book of Job? This book that looks like it is Job, but it is actually Job is a book about a guy named Job. He's the main character of the story. He's a good guy. In fact, there's no record of him ever doing anything wrong. We know that he did things wrong because he's a normal human, but there's no record of that. In fact, he is set up as the example of the very best among us, the wealthiest, the richest, the most powerful, and the most righteous. This is the main character. And then along one day, a character that uh, the Hebrew calls the Satan or the accuser, the accuser or the um, sometimes called the tempter, we call Satan, approached God and challenged him on his management of the universe. He uses Job as an illustration. He says, does Job do good things because it's the right thing to do? Or does Job do good things in order to get good things? He's really questioning the way in which God manages the universe, this retribution principle. He's not questioning why do bad things happen to good people. That's what we think Job is talking about, but that's not at all what it's talking about. In fact, it never, ever answers that question, ever, at all. What it does attack and attempts to answer is God's system by which he manages the world. God allows the Satan to conf or, or conflict pain on Job through the loss of his stuff, his family, and his health. In this period of suffering, Job's wife and his friends come up to him and explain to him the way in which they understand the world and the universe and God and the way God relates to people. All of them are wrong, and this just increases or adds to Job's suffering. Job comes close to sinning. He walks right up to the line. But as I said, nowhere in the text does it say that he did actually sin. It's just that his words and the confrontation are the, are the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the assertion that he had done nothing wrong came very close to questioning the values and the judgment and the justice of God. God does finally speak into the situation, personally speaks to Job to uh, keep him, in essence, from crossing that line. But he does not explain how he runs the universe. Instead, he asks Job to do what he asks all of us to do. Trust him. God doesn't answer the question, this is how I do things. God just says, you're going to have to trust me. Why? Because he is God. And eventually Job does repent and he is restored to his place of privilege, honor, and wealth. That's the story of Job. That's what we've been looking at for the last several weeks. But this last time in chapter 42, in verses 1 through 6, is the last time that we have record of Job speaking. And it's in that speech, it's in that small little text, in those few verses, in which I believe, or I think it's sort of clever, that Job summarizes the entire book. And so if you missed the lesson, if you were somewhere, or you just skipped one day, you got away with it, all right? We're going to summarize this, and you missed nothing at all, all right? So today, 
you catch back up completely. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So look at the verses here. Job chapter 42, verse 2. Uh, verse 1 just says, and then Job started talking, all right? Verse 2 says, I know, Job says, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted or cut off. I know that you can do anything and that your plans are established. The Bible is a story, a book about God. It is God's revelation, God telling the world about himself. And every book, every story, every line, every proverb, every psalm is about God and what God can do. It starts with, in the beginning, God created. He spoke things, and they were. He made things, and they came into existence. God judged rebellious humanity, and in that act with Noah and the flood, he not only showed his ability to judge and to, and to rule and to reign and to be just, but he also, in that very same act, showed his ability to rescue and to redeem and to save those who have put their trust in Jesus. Or not really, into God at Noah. Noah didn't know Jesus at the time. So they put their trust in there, and God was able to save them from his wrath. Later on, God takes a man and a woman who were unable to have children, and he creates within them a family. That family grows to a people. God makes a people, a great numerous people who are enslaved in Egypt. And God, in his own ability, frees those people from the strongest power that the world had had at that time. He takes those people and he, and he takes them out and he gives them a law and a culture and a leader and he takes a group of slaves, a group of shepherds and turns them into a nation, a powerful nation and gives them a ruler and a king and a prophet and priest. This is what God is able to do. Later on, God sends his own son and his son being Jesus Christ who is God himself, pays the price and through his ability beats our greatest enemy which is death and sin and darkness. That's what God is able to do. And through his resurrection, Jesus now rules and reigns next to his Father. That is what our God is able to do. That is a lesson that Job learns, that there is nothing that God is not able to do. He's powerful. He is limitless. God is strong. It not only speaks about his ability, but it also speaks about his plan. Not only what he's able to do, but what he has planned to do. We are not simply following a God into the darkness and hoping that he can rescue us from whatever lies in the shadows. We are walking with a God who has planned our steps and directs our paths. That's what Proverbs 16 verse 9 says. That whatever God has planned, it will not be cut short or ended. He will accomplish exactly what he planned to do. This is a lesson that we learn in our suffering. This is a lesson that Job learned in his suffering, that when we can't, when we can't fix the situation, when we can't see around the corner, when we can't negotiate or understand God can, God does. God is able. That's a lesson that Job learned. That's exactly what he says. I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. My dad was an exceptional athlete. I knew that cognitively. I knew that factually. But I never saw him play in high school. I never saw him play baseball or, or football or anything like that. I just knew that he was rumored to be an exceptional athlete. One day after work, um, we were over in East Texas. There was this factory that was um, expanding its footprint, 
building on thousands and thousands of square feet. And my dad and I and, and a crew were in there installing the air conditioner, like the, the, the ductwork that is in here. This huge, open, metal building. And uh, most of everybody had left. My dad bends down, he picks up a dirt clod, and he throws it at this sign that was several uh, yards away. I don't know exactly how many yards it was away or how far away it was. It was far enough to be impressive. He smiled at me and he looked and he said, pick a letter on that sign. And so I did. And he picked up another dirt clod and he nailed that letter. Again and again and again, no matter what I picked on that sign, he hit exactly in that spot. I could pick a letter. I could pick a portion of a letter. I could say the, the crossbar on the top of that J or the center of that O or the bottom crook of that S. And every single time he nailed it from exactly where he was. I picked up a dirt clod and didn't even hit the sign completely missed. I looked at my dad and I said, how do you do that? And he just smiled. He said, I don't know. You just look at it and then you throw it. And uh, I wish that that's exactly how that worked because I promise you, I was looking at that sign, um, but it just didn't work out that way. And in that setting and in numerous setting, my dad's ability far exceeds mine. It's the same thing with God, that no matter how capable and able and amazing you are, which you are, God is far more capable. Remember Job, we often picture him as being stripped and, and um, sores on his body and ashes on his head, but Job was incredibly powerful, incredibly influential and wealthy. He was the best of among us, and he learned the hard way that God is able to do whatever God wants to do. That's not the only lesson that Job learned. Look at verse 3. You asked... Who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? For whatever reason, when I read this verse, I hear it like the Wizard of Oz. Y'all y'all remember the Wizard of Oz when they were standing there? And he's like, who wants to see the Wizard of Oz? That's, that's how I see this. You asked, who is it who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand. Things too wondrous for me to know. Wondrous means supernatural. That would be a word that we would use in this. Job says, not only is God able to do whatever God wants to do, but Job also said, and I don't know nearly as much as I thought I knew. That was a lesson he learned the very hard way. Remember, Job sat at the, at the, at the gate of the city. He was like a judge. He was an elder. He was a leader. People would come to him and ask him some questions. And through this whole circumstances, Job learns what we all find out. that we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. In our suffering, one of the biggest things that we learn we do not know is the answer to the question, why? Why am I going through the hard thing that I am going through? Why is my child suffering through this thing that I cannot stop? Why are we experiencing these things that hurt, that crush that suffocates. Why? And anybody, and I know that several of you have experienced suffering. You've experienced brokenness. Many of you are experiencing that right now. I know this because I've walked with you. I've talked with you. I've heard your story. Even those of you who did get some sort of answer to the question why, did you ever find it to be satisfying? That that was good enough. In this life, when you suffer, even when you do get some glimpse at why, it often is not good enough. It may help like a band-aid, but it never fixes like a surgeon. 
It doesn't exactly answer the questions why. That's one of the things that we don't know. There are other things, of course, in our daily lives, our regular daily lives that I don't understand, and probably you don't understand as well. One of the big things is I just don't understand why people are so mean to each other. Is that, is that like, I mean, can we say that out loud or does that sound too kindergarten? Or the famous question, why can't we just get along? I mean, I know why, according to Scripture, but I just don't get it. Why do you got to mess with each other? Why do we, why do we got to just leave them alone? I don't understand that. I don't understand why we find it so hard to forgive other people. I don't understand why people who have been forgiven of so much cannot turn around and forgive somebody else. And sometimes you can't even forgive the person who has forgiven you of so much, you know? I don't understand that. And you probably don't understand that as well. These are things we do not understand. I cannot figure out why people are so enamored by our own feeble abilities and have to be constantly reminded about God. Why is it that we need to be reminded about God? I mean, He's God. Shouldn't He obsess our every thought? Shouldn't He amaze our every moment? And yet we have to be reminded to thank God for the rain. I don't understand that about us. There are things that he speaks about. He says, these are the things I do not understand, and yet these are the things that are too supernatural for me to understand. To even know. These are details that I don't understand, and then these are things that I just couldn't possibly understand, even if you told me about them. In Job, earlier on, uh, God asked Job just a ton of questions, just one after another, after another, after another. I read those this week, and here's some of the ones that stood out to me to be the most supernatural. If you're a DC Talk fan, there's a song that should be running through your head right now, and it's a glorious song. Job 38, 22 through 24. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Picture God asking you these questions. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Or have you seen the storehouse of hail, which I hold in reserve for times of trouble, for the days of warfare and for battle? What road leads to the place where light is dispersed? Where is the source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? Later on, he says, who put wisdom in the heart or gave a mind understanding? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds or who can tilt the water jars of heaven? These are things that when we start to think about them, of course, they're poetic, and they're beautiful, and they're illustrative, but the answers God knows, and we don't. Extremely hard lesson that Job learned the hard way. We don't know nearly as much as we think we do. It reminds me of uh, what somebody said at, uh, around the time that I was graduating with my bachelor's degree. They said a bachelor's degree just lets you know how little you know, and that's true. That's true. Being in a college town, that's something we just got to remind people of. Degrees just remind you of how little you actually know. Job learned that lesson the hard way. And so Job learns at least two lessons the hard way. First of all, he learns that God is unbelievably capable. And second, that it is far beyond anything that we could ever fully understand. Here's the next lesson. Job says, I heard reports about you, but now... My eyes have seen you. I have heard a lot of things about you, but now my eyes have seen you. One of the most ironic and beautiful things about the book of Job is that it is a book that asks a question that it is not going to answer. 
And and it's making us think that way. It pushes us to think to the idea of trusting God. But here's what it does instead. Instead, it tells us about God. God introduces himself. It's like we walk up to the throne room of God and say, here's all of my questions. And God says, I'm not answering any of that, but here am I. It's not the way that we would create a religion. It's not the way that we would create this if we were to form it ourselves. We would not form this all-powerful, all-knowing God who communicates and is personal. I know this because humanity has created many, many religions, and the gods are more like us than they are separate from us. They are concerned with theirs and particularly our power, our comfort, and our safety. Never would we create a God who has a standard that we cannot meet, and yet he introduces himself and meets that standard on our behalf. An all-powerful God that would love through self-sacrifice and then call us to live our lives out sacrificing for the good of others and the glory of God. You don't create that kind of religion. This is God who introduces himself. Hebrew one, uh, Hebrews 1 First chapter, 1 through 2, says, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. Most notably, the way in which we see or know God not only in the book of Job or Psalm or Isaiah or Genesis or Exodus and all of those books and Matthew, what we understand and see God is Jesus. The person and the work of Jesus is God introducing himself to the world, to humanity. And so when we see Jesus, we see God. That's what Jesus said. If you know me, you know the Father and the one who sent me. The way that these two concepts come together is interesting to me. Not only the knowing, what you have heard, but also the seeing and how those two relate to one another. In Texas, the Alamo is a big deal. Uh, there are, it's a big deal in a lot of places, but definitely a big deal down there. There are songs and legends and stories. There are billboards and pictures and marketing that all stem from the idea and the location of the Alamo. And so one day when I had the opportunity to go and see the Alamo, I was pretty excited about this. I had heard a lot about it, and so now we were going to see it. And we drove all the way down there, four and a half hours away from where we lived, and, and we went down there, and, and we parked, and we walked around the buildings and I walked around the corner and I my first thought was is that it that's the whole thing everybody talks about the Alamo and I'm thinking to myself well not everything is bigger in Texas this thing is small they defended this for how long I would have just let them have it you know this is tiny and every time it does not matter where or what I hear about the Alamo my very first thought is that thing is disappointingly small It's just very, very small. But nobody had to tell me when I walked around the corner what the Alamo was. I had heard about it. I had heard lots of things about it. And so when I saw it, I knew it. And what I saw helped helped to define what it is that I had heard. It's similar with God. When you hear about him, when you learn about him, this is important to know what the Bible says about God, to know what God says about God. It's important that you hear these things so that when you see him act, you know that it is him. 
You know that it's the way that he is acting. Sometimes people have this deep sense of God's will in their life. Sometimes they have indigestion. And you don't know the difference unless you know what God does, you know? You know what lines up with who God is. They're very important. What it is that I have heard and now I have seen, both of those relate to one another. Just in these few verses, we find these lessons that Job learned. God has amazing ability, and we don't know everything that we think we do. But we know God as much as he has revealed himself. And then finally, the fourth lesson is that we are limited. Job says in in verse 6, Therefore, I reject my words, and I am sorry for them. I reject my words, and I am sorry for them. Job gives an apology. He's talked a lot in the book of Job. There's a lot of times where Job speaks, and yet at no point does he ever sin. And so then what is Job exactly saying that he's apologizing about? Well, the reality is this, that in Job's assertion, in his confidence that he had done nothing wrong, and remember, he was right, in that assertion he came very close to questioning the justice of God. He came very close to questioning God's ability to manage all of creation. And so what Job is apologizing for is not that he's apologizing for doing something wrong. He's apologizing for saying something ignorant, for speaking about something that he does not know, which really makes me kind of take a sidestep here and just speak to you a little bit about I am sorry. Our culture of apologetics, our culture of saying that you are sorry. Our world just doesn't accept somebody saying, I messed up and I'm sorry about it. We have this thing, this flow, this this ebb, this current within our culture that we call cancel culture. And I'm not talking about the idea of using prudence, and Christians ought to use prudence. There are times in which you should distance yourself from somebody else because they, uh, they're not a good influence on you, or they, or they are headed down a different path than you are headed on. I'm fine with all of that. In fact, I think that, that is wise, and I, th- I think that is good. But cancel culture really is the idea of deleting somebody who doesn't align with you on every little thing. It can be a tiny little thing, and you want to cancel them or delete them. And I hear people talk about, oh, that's the liberals and that's the left. Look, I grew up in a church that canceled Disney, okay? So we do it too, okay? We all have this idea that if you don't align with me, then I'm going to cancel you out. And Christians ought not participate in cancel culture. When people, when people do the wrong thing, allow them to apologize. Furthermore, I don't know how much sleep you should lose over some corporation doing something that you don't agree with what they did. I think you should make a stance. I think you should say something about it. But I wouldn't lose my whole identity or my mind or my social media presence because you don't agree with something that some corporation did or didn't do. More specifically than that, I think when you put that into the personal life, I am very concerned and even troubled by the idea of how quickly we will delete relationships because somebody didn't align with my political view. Oh, I love them. We grew up in the same town. We, we, uh, we believe the same things about the Bible. We, we even like the same sports team. They voted for a different guy than me. They should die. That's cancel. That's cancel culture in our own hearts. And at some point, you're going to have to see past that and realize that people are multifaceted, and they are not multifaceted reflections of your desires for who they should be. Stop canceling people. 
or else we would just cancel Job and David and Abraham. That guy was sleazy sometimes. We shouldn't do that. We should be a little bit more long-suffering. And then the other thing, and remember, I already said this, use wisdom in your relationships, of course. But don't cancel everybody just because they don't align with everything you think. The other thing, and I think that this is clear from what Job says here, is be careful about speaking things that you are not, you're, you're not really sure about. He says, I spoke about things that I was ignorant to. I didn't really know about these things. And people all the time will speak very authoritatively about uh, um, uh, uh, leadership or roundabouts or raising canes. I don't know. They just speak very authoritative about the way that everybody else should live their lives. And I'm telling you, here's a secret that would really uh, help your daily life. Here's a secret that would help your daily relationships. If you would just include this vocabulary in your language. I'm, I, I have no idea, and I'm not really sure, but if it were me, I would try it this way. Instead of saying, those idiots should have done it this way, just at least acknowledge the idea that you maybe don't know everything. Job apologizes, and he says, I am dust and ashes. Now, what does that mean? It's poetic language, but what it means is like if you have ashes in your hand or if you have dust in your hand and the wind would blow them away, they are weightless, that they are unimpactful, that they are here now and they're gone tomorrow, that they, they have very little value, which is also amazing to me because you remember that at one point Job rinses his clothes and sits in a pile of ashes and pours them on his head as this sign of remorse. And there's some of that there in his repentance. There's this sign of remorse, but really what he's saying is, I am limited, that there are things that I do not know. There are things that I cannot do. This is a hard lesson that we learn only in defeat. It's only when we lose that we realize that we're not all that, that we can't accomplish everything, that you can have happy thoughts and visualize it and put a picture on the board if you want to, and sometimes you're going to fail. You know why? Because you're a human. That's what happens. It's actually a good thing to realize that you can't do everything. That's a good thing. And Job learns that lesson the hard way. I really found this interesting. That in the last words in the book that Job speaks, in a prayer, in an apology, he sums up what we learn in the entire book. And here's the two-sentence summary. I'm not real good at grammar, so you may get more sentences out of this. But this is what, this is the summary. God has limitless power, and we are limited. He is making himself known to the best that we can understand. God has limitless power, and yet we are limited. He is making himself known to the best that we can understand. That's the four hard lessons that Job learned the hard way. And my prayer, my hope is that you and I, that we would just learn them by reading Job, okay? And not have to go through this ourselves. I want to make a, a, a note here toward the end of this sermon. I want to comment about the, the finish of the book. Because if you're familiar with Job, if I stop right now and pray and dismiss you, you're all going to be like, well, you may not care at all, but some of you will be like, but it, that's not the ending. That's not how the book ends. It's a much better ending than what you just said. And I want to talk about that ending. See, right after this prayer, God um, forgives Job's friends from speaking and things that they do not know. And then the Bible says that Job is restored. 
that his wealth comes back to him, that he has a big family, that his health comes back to him, that his in-laws even come, and they like him, all right? And so Job is restored to this good place. That's how that ends. And a lot of sermons that you might read uh, would focus in on that. And if you'll remember, remember when I was preaching from chapter 14? Of course you do. Remember back then, and I said something along the lines of, um, Job says, any woman or any person born of woman is short on days and long on trouble. You remember when Job said that? And I told you that that short on days phrase is a turn of a phrase in which he was, he was actually kind of making fun of the way they normally talked about somebody who lived a long life full of days. Y'all remember that? Anybody? One person? At least one person remember that. Great. So look in your Bible at the very last few words of the book of Job. The very last few words of the book of Job are that Job lived a long life full of days. So it's this idea that Job's life gets restored and it gets put back together. And that's a beautiful story. That's a great way to end the story. So why am I not focusing on that? I'm not focusing on that for two reasons. The first one is we just have a tendency to focus in on the, uh, the restoration part. We like that. We like that ending. And somewhere along the lines, we get the idea that if we just hold on while we are going through hardships, that at the end of this, God will owe me a big prize. That when I'm suffering, if I just hold on and I smile, when I lose my job for no reason, when I didn't do anything wrong, that if I just keep smiling and I keep singing my songs and I keep the radio on Caleb, then eventually God is going to give me a good, well-paying job. He's going to. Why? Because I'm suffering and he owes me. But listen, there is no promise at the end of the rainbow of a pot of gold. It's just not the case. There are so many stories, so many stories of people in the Bible, missionaries, the heroes of our faith, who they suffered and then they died. There is no promise of a prize at the end of your suffering, except that the end goal is for you to know God. And that is far better than any physical or temporal treasure that you can hold in your hands. So he does get his stuff back, and that's great. And I'm happy for Job. I hope that happens to all of you. But at the end of the day, the main fruit of our suffering is to know God more. The other thing, the other reason that I'm not focusing on the end of that as much is that when you read it real fast, you feel like Job had all this great stuff, and then it was taken away from him. But don't worry, it's all given back to him. Right? Even, I mean, to be honest, if you've read the story of Job before, you know the story. When we started and we were talking about all the bad stuff that was happening to him, some of you had this little thought in your mind that's like, it's not so bad, he gets it all back, you know? It's okay, Job will be fine. And so we kind of feel like that about him. Verse 15 is sort of odd to me. If you look at verse 15, it says that there were no women in all of the land more beautiful than Job's new daughters. And that's cool, I guess. I, I only have boys, but if you have daughters, I'm sure that you want them to be the most beautiful in all of the land. But I am not thinking that Job raised these beautiful daughters and thought that these are way better than the daughters that I lost. You know, it's not like Job sat there and go, oh, that the fact that I lost all those other kids, that doesn't hurt anymore. Because I have these new ones, and they're pretty cool. Because here's what I'm trying to tell you. Sometimes you will suffer a loss, and it doesn't get replaced because it can't get replaced. 
You can't have back some of the things that were taken away. What we need to know and see is that verse 5 really is the point. I heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. That ultimately the prize, ultimately the reward, ultimately the restoration is not that you get things back, and some of them cannot be replaced, but that you get God. That that's what you're going to find in your suffering. That's what I hope. That's what I truly desire that you would find in whatever hardship that you're going through would be God more clearly. That you would experience him and know him the way that he wants you to know him. And so this whole story of Job, these lessons learned and this restoration redemption story brings us and leaves you in a place where you have to make some sort of decision. You have to decide for yourself how you're going to respond to this story. To the best of what you know and understand, how are you going to respond to God? Because there are some people who will sit back and wait. They'll sit back and try to wait until they understand everything it is to understand about God and life and what happens after this life. They are waiting until they have all the answers to respond positively to God. And I am telling you, you are never going to get there. All of us in this room, the person on the platform behind the lectern is telling you, I don't understand everything about God nor life, but I trust him. And so to the best of what you know about God and who he is, and the best of what you know about you and who you are, are you willing, are you ready to admit that you are limited, broken, and in need of a Savior? That you see him, Jesus, as the only possible, reasonable, and acceptable solution. That you accept that he has made himself known through Jesus. And that Jesus took the penalty of your brokenness on himself. And that he offers you restoration and redemption when you come to him and trust him. That he will save you and that he will free you. If you do that, it is life-changing. It gives you life and it gives you the purpose of your life. So how are you going to respond to Job's story? You have to do that yourself. If you do, let me encourage you to grab one of those cards in the seat back in front of you. Fill it out. Let me know. I would love to celebrate with you. I'd love to talk to you more about what that is. Some minister, some pastor would love to be in on your decision to follow Jesus. There's this ad agency in uh, Dallas, Texas. Huge ad agency, and it's really pretty. It's really big, and it overlooks uh, Central Expressway there, the Skyrise building, and, and because it's an ad agency, everything in it is artistic. Uh, every floor has a certain color. All of it is beautiful and interesting and cool. There's this whole section of one of the floors that has um, these workout equipment. Like, like you can run overlooking the skyline of Dallas. Every direction you look is just this massive, big beautiful buildings. There's these um, custom coffee drink machines everywhere. Everywhere. Just free. You just walk up and you're like do 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 and then you get your drink, you know. And it's cool and, it, and it's neat. There's a whole section just of ping pong tables. That's it. There were just hundreds of ping pong tables. And my friend took me there one day to, to show me the place. He was a member of our church and he was going to give me a tour of it. And by the way, I like going to people's uh, work and seeing how they work, even if it's not a giant skyscraper. So if you ever want to, you know, take pastor to work day, just let me know. I would love to do that. 
Normally we meet where I work, but it'd be cool to, you know, um, go where you work sometimes. So just keep that in mind. I would love that. And so he was showing me everything, and, and we got into the elevator, and the elevator did that whole thing, you know, it goes, uh, floor one. And it was cool, too. It was like a touchpad, and, and you could even talk to the elevator. Elevator, take me to the ping pong room, you know, something like that, you know. And he was like, he was so proud of everything, and he should be. It was really cool. Floor two. And he says, do you, do you, reckon, do you recognize that voice? And I said, oh, I think I do, um, but I'm not real sure. And he goes, it's Tom Bodet. And I was like, who's Tom Bodet? You know, and he says, he says, you know, Motel 6. Hi, I'm Tom Bodet uh, from Motel 6, and we'll leave the light on for you. Y'all know that? Y'all know, now you know who Tom Bodet is, right, you know? And I was, he was like, it's Motel 6 guy, it's Tom Bodet. That was with the voice, and I was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. And then also at the same time, kind of not cool at all, you know? That's neat. That's, that's neat. And he was like, oh, man, it's so cool. See, this ad agency, they do uh, Chick-fil-A. That was one of their biggest clients. Uh, Motel 6 was a big client. Uh, college football is a huge client. And they're the ones who created this, I mean, these Tom Bodet commercials. And if you think about it, I don't know if you ever have, you ever just drive down the road and somebody says, hey, this is Tom Bodet with Motel 6, and you're thinking, who cares? <laughs> I don't know you, Tom, you know? But that's, that's how the commercial's gone forever, and you've never even questioned it. Why? Because it's Tom Bodet. I looked it up. I looked up what Tom Bodet does. Who is this guy, you know, that uh, the Richards Group in Dallas, Texas is so proud of? You know that he is a, he's a radio personality. He does a ton of these uh, radio shows for NPR. He also wrote eight books, eight real books with no pictures. And you only know one line, one line from this guy. And he made that up. He was ad-libbing at the time. And that's how we know this Tom Bodet guy. I told you all of that, and I've got to confess to you, it has nothing to do with the sermon. But I wanted to end with a Tom Bodet quote, and this is a Tom Bodet quote. Not the one you know. This is probably in a book or something. I didn't read his books, but this is probably in there. He said, In school, you are taught a lesson and then given a test. In life, you're given a test that teaches you a lesson. I think he's right. And I hope that we would learn the lesson to the test that Job was given. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.